Hey, it's David Hurley. Thank you for tuning into the Hurley Burley. You'd do me a big favor if you'd go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. Thanks. I'm David Hurley, and welcome to the Hurley Burley. The Hurley Burley is Canada's only podcast that unapologetically mixes politics with business, journalism, music, beer, cheese-flavored snack foods, recreational and medical cannabis, athletic apparel, retail hardware, and just about anything else that might get us a sponsor one day. Today on the pod, a very special guest, environmentalist, author, activist, lawyer, member of Parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands, and the leader of the Green Party of Canada, Elizabeth May. We're going to talk to Elizabeth about a few things today in the lead-up to October's election, uh, what the Green Party stands for and what its objectives are, climate change and climate action, Canada's economy, and what's happening in Trump's America. Hope to cover all of that. Elizabeth May, thank you for making the time to join us here in the Hurley Burley. Thank you, David. I'm just looking around for my cheese-flavored snack foods. <laughs> <laughs> they would be Hawkins cheesies, but there, oh, was a, yeah. but there was a fire at the plant. I know. My husband was alarmed. Yeah. I like saying that, my husband. <laughs> it's wonderful. You got married this summer. I got married April 22nd, being Earth Day, Easter Monday. Right. Yeah, so I'm uh, low these many weeks I am married. Is it good? It's wonderful. Really? Yeah, he's the Green Party candidate in Mission Matsui Fraser Canyon, in case anyone listening to this podcast lives somewhere within the 20,000 square kilometers. <laughs> that is Mission Matsui Fraser Canyon. John Kidder, your candidate in that riding. <laughs> My husband <laughs> everywhere. Um, your background, you know, I don't, I don't like to necessarily do these things where you tell us all about your childhood and the street you grew up on, but I am curious about the fact that not only were you born in the United States, mm-hmm. but I believe you spent 19 years there. That's correct. Right? Yeah. Your first 19 years of your life, pretty formative. Yes. What do you think that's mm-hmm. left in you, having lived all of your adult life in Canada? What's left of the United States in you? It was, I mean, it, you know, David, I think you're the first person since I've become leader of the Green Party who's ever asked me that, which is pretty significant because I grew up in a, in a household where my mom was an activist, you know, you know, in the 1950s context of stay-at-home mom, but also suddenly discovered that atmospheric nuclear weapons testing was causing, an, or was, well, scientists were worried it would cause an increase in childhood leukemia. She got involved. She ended up being at the, you know, kind of, well, not literally barricades, but I would go down with her. She'd be lobbying uh, through the corridors of the Senate office buildings with her stack of petitions against nuclear weapons testing. Or we'd be picketing outside the White House. Or then after we, and then, as far as I was concerned, this is the biggest takeaway from my childhood, is that I saw my mommy stop the governments from exploding nuclear weapons in the atmosphere because President Kennedy signed a test ban treaty against atmospheric nuclear weapons testing. I walked with my mom in 1960 in the Aldermaston March that culminated in Trafalgar Square with 100,000 people where my mom spoke on behalf of the U.S. anti-nuclear movement. And I was six years old and clasping her skirts at the plinth of the Nelson Monument. Like these, these aren't small memories, right? Um, And then we went, then of course we were active in, I say of course, uh, the logical thing for people like my mom at that point having stopped nuclear weapons testing was to get involved in trying to end the Jim Crow laws, support the, uh, registering the black vote in in the southern states, fighting against segregation and all those, uh, that horrible time. Uh, then moved into fighting against the war in Vietnam. 
Right. So that's how it came to be that when I was 14 years old and my mom was a delegate to the Chicago Convention, that was my first time being tear gassed. Now, this is not your average childhood. Wait a second. Just, we can't just let that slip by. Your mother took you as a child to the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago yeah. where Mayor Daley unleashed the cops on the protesters. Yeah. And you actually were tear gassed. Yes. Get because out. my mom... My mom came up, well, actually, there was a brilliant young law student at Yale Law School, a guy named Jeff Cowan, who discovered an obscure aspect of laws in every single municipality in the state of Connecticut that said that you could force a primary for the election of, like, sheriff, dog catcher, and then the delegate to a national convention. And having discovered this obscure, never-before-used way to force getting uh, – well, what we wanted was, of course, delegates to the Democratic Convention who'd be prepared to support Eugene McCarthy because we were supporting Eugene McCarthy. I was in Chicago with my mom in December of 67 when Gene McCarthy announced he would challenge Lyndon Johnson and run for president. Right. And I mean, it gets even weirder because my mom was a childhood friend of Bobby Kennedy because my mom grew up in Bronxville, New York, and there were only two Democratic families in Bronxville, New York, my, my mom's family and the Kennedys. Anyway, so we were there. We wanted to do everything we could to get Eugene McCarthy enough delegates to actually make a challenge to Lyndon Johnson that could end the war in Vietnam. And this obscure little rule, my mother studied it. My mom had a gift, just, just like an instinct for activism and organization. And she took this obscure thing. She developed a pamphlet that I can still remember. It was, you know, your, your standard three, three-fold pamphlet, but it went sideways with, and it cut diagonally. And one top of it was red, and then the bottom was white with red letters, and it said, the system. You have to know it to beat it. And inside was instructions for absolutely anyone for how to get enough signatures to force on a town-by-town basis a vote for the Democratic member of the delegation to the convention to then vote. It's complicated steps, but they did it enough to force uh, primaries Oh, I should tell you how my mom paid for that brochure because in these but days— But wait a second. Just let me ask you. Do you ever—because I'm a big Lyndon Johnson person. Uh-huh. I love Lyndon Johnson. Me not so much. Right. So <laughs> so do you ever feel guilty, you Democrats that drove him from office, do you ever feel guilty about driving him from office? Because what came after? He's the last liberal to be president of the United States. Well, I don't. I've never even occurred to me to feel guilty. I was so We were so betrayed— but I won't send American boys to Vietnam to do what Vietnamese boys should be doing for themselves. He's responsible for an illegal war. He's, resp- he's the first president in the history of that nation to decide that you can ignore the Constitution and go to war without getting the support of Congress. So, yeah, the record is mixed, but I've never in my the life— The war on poverty, the yeah. civil rights stuff. Well, I mean, if the—, the And then Nixon. He was replaced by Nixon. <laughs> yep. Yeah, well, this is, the, this is the great irony. My mother was so enraged by what Hubert Humphrey did and his lies that she actually voted for Nixon. And I can remember the anguished calls from one of her best friends, who was Norman Cousins, who was the, that time the editor of the Saturday Review of Literature, one of our closest friends. I think Norman thought if he could get my mom to agree to vote for Humphrey, despite everything they had done— Right? right, And having been tear-gassed and having Humphrey just, my mother felt it was just like Pontius Pilate washing his hands because the reports were that as we were all being tear-gassed, uh, Humphrey went and had a shower. My mother, oh, my God. So, but, but the irony is that as we were loading the car to move to Cape Breton, uh, somehow or other Nixon's enemies list was made public, and my mom was on it. Really? Yeah. 
There you go. I, I am so proud of my my late mom. So I imagine. How, yeah, so that's how I grew up, which is kind of weird. So back to my mom, just quickly on this brochure, it was this is another thing I learned from my mom, which is really a bad lesson if you want to have financial security. My mom and my dad, in order to get that brochure printed, because in those days, right, no computers, no way you just set something up and print it off and it's just easy peasy. They took a second mortgage on the house to get the brochures printed. And when they were all loaded into our house, for a while, the living room, you couldn't sit in the living room because it was all boxes. And as my mom and I went from town to town to town, riding forth with all these brochures to organize town by town by town committees to elect uh, Gene McCarthy, the boxes began to dwindle in the living room. The donations began to come in. So we paid off the loan on the second mortgage on the house. But you may remember, I don't know if you remember this, when we were trying to get Kyoto ratified, and we took a, a full-page ad on uh, Kyoto, who's against Kyoto. You know, it was a wonderful mm. ad. But I had to come up with $80,000 overnight to get it to the Globe and Mail to hold the space for the ad. And I just called my credit union and mm. took out a second – well, I couldn't take out a second mortgage. It took too long. They said, we can't do a mortgage, but we'll give you the loan. Okay. But the, the house is security. Yes. Okay, good, fine. So if I hadn't learned that, met, let me. So it, it's instilled in me mm. a sense of you do the, you do what you need to do, and you can figure out the details mm. later. And if you have to put yourself right out there, you just do it. So that's that. You're right. A hugely formative part of my life. And uh, do I feel guilty to this day about that? No. And Bill Clinton is, you know, I think he was a liberal, but he did a lot of uh, globalizing things. Put it that way. The era of big government is over. I know. The welfare state as we knew it is dead. I right? think, I think he did a lot Reagan of things. Ronald Reagan is that, a hero. I know. I think he betrayed a lot of who he really was yeah. in that kind of stuff. Because that's <clears> another <throat> thing about Connecticut. I met Bill when he, I was 17. Oh, okay. So you're smitten. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Weak, weak in the knees at 17 <laughs> years old. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so I, I I just wanted for sorry uh, talking too long about my childhood for everybody listening at home mortgaging your second home to put out a brochure or to put an ad in the Globe and Mail don't try this at home kids uh, <laughs> not without supervision um, okay so let's talk about climate yeah. um, because I uh, I had been um, pretty concerned about what was happening with the climate I was kind of worried uh, <laughs> that maybe something was going on and then I had George Will a renowned intellectual on this very podcast, and he told me that there was nothing to worry about. He told me that the uh, forecasts had always been wrong and were likely to be wrong now, and that it wasn't even prudent to take any action against climate change right now. So now I, I, I feel greatly relieved that I've moved on to other issues. But you <laughs> you still seem obsessed with climate change, so maybe you can tell me about that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that last comment was deeply ironic. <laughs> Look, I am, you know, candidly... Terrified. But pull, we have to pull ourselves up right. and face it. And here's what we know about climate science. To the extent that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has been wrong, and they have been wrong, it's always because they underestimate how severe it is and they underestimate how fast it's coming. Because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is not an NGO. It's not, an, it's not a lobby group. It's negotiated science from scientists appointed by governments. It's essentially the most elaborate, excruciating peer review system for science that's ever been created. It was created with a lot of Canadian leadership, by the way, in June, after June 1988 in Toronto, the big climate conference that we held then. That was my last week at work in that 
administration. But anyway, uh, the, the IPCC reviews whatever work is being published all around the world, you know, tens of thousands of papers, because climate science isn't one field. It's, some of it is physics, and some of it is paleoclimatology, and some of it is computer modeling, and some of it is observations, and some of it is looking at oceans, and some of it is looking at, well, you know, it's, it's massive in terms of data and the different disciplines. It's an interdisciplinary science endeavor, and it also has social and economic aspects, and all of those are reviewed by the IPCC. In reviewing it, they publish on a four-year cycle. The papers they're talking about by the time they publish are generally already two years old. Right. And so when the IPCC reported in the special report that came out in October of last year, which was, by the way, mandated by governments in Paris at COP21, when we negotiated the Paris Agreement that we would hold global average temperature to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius— and certainly not more than two. And by the way, this was Catherine McKenna's first week at work, and this is the best thing she's done since she was Minister of Environment, was to be the first, we were the first industrialized country in Paris to say the treaty should say 1.5. Because that probably will, if that wasn't there, we'd already be bound to a convention. If two degrees was the only threshold that we must avoid exceeding, we'd be on a path to at least the loss of human civilization and maybe extinction. Can you help me? Have you found a simple way of explaining this to me? 1.5 1.5 or 2 degrees feels inconsequential yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. It feels I, – I know that I'm confusing weather and climate, yeah. but it I don't know more than that. So it just feels to me like, um, you know, that's not that's not something that alarms me when I hear okay. that. I know. And, that's part of our problem. This is, this is the worst issue in the world for messaging. Mm. You know, back in the day, I was very – I'm still friends with John Fraser, but back in the day when John Fraser was Minister of Environment in the Joe Clark government, right. oh boy, listening at home children, get out your history books, but this goes back. And the uh, the Environment Canada scientists would say, we have a terrible problem with LURTAP, Mr. Minister. What LURTAP is, long-range transport of acidic precipitation. And he said, well, well, can't we call it acid rain? Well, no, Mr. Minister. He told me this story once. It's so funny. Mm. Uh, no, Mr. Minister, because sometimes this acidic precipitation falls as snow, and sometimes it's fog, and sometimes it's dry deposition. So he said something like, God damn it, from now on we're calling it acid rain. Because mm. you can't communicate LURTAP. Right. Here's the problem with the climate science. When we started working on this issue in 88, we talked about we have to avoid concentrations in the atmosphere of exceeding a certain amount parts per million. Because in the, based on some of the science that's very, very cool around climate change in terms of being verifiable, modern, and, and irrefutable – is Antarctic ice core data readings. So we've, a, we've been able to you know, drill in Antarctic ice cores. Ice never freezes solid, so there's always air bubbles. So we've got time capsules to the atmosphere going back almost a million years. So we know, as a matter of fact, that in that whole period of time, which certainly far exceeds the amount of time that, he, that Homo sapiens have been traipsing around, there's never been more than 280 parts per million of CO2 in our atmosphere. We're now at 412, 415. This is terrifying. But it got transferred into discussing how that affects the planet in global average temperature increase because I think they thought the parts per million was too hard to explain. So then we went into, okay, we don't want to exceed 2 degrees or maybe 1.5. So here's how I would put that in a context that makes sense in a country where it can be 35 degrees in the summer and minus 30 in the winter – but that's the local temperature. Global average temperature doesn't change much. And if it changes much at all, the consequences are huge. 
So the difference between planet Earth now or Canada now and 10,000 years ago when we would have been under several kilometers of ice right here is five degrees global average temperature. Global average temperature changes are enormous in their impact. We're currently at one degree Celsius global average temperature increase above what we were before the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And at one degree Celsius global, and we're not going to be able to go back. This isn't a dial you can turn down. This doesn't go backwards. We, a global average temperature change on that scale is enormous. And we're still loading the atmosphere with more warming gases. We're still trying If And there's, there's a place somewhere, according to the IPCC, we now know somewhere below two degrees where the the greenhouse gases that we pulse into the atmosphere trigger what scientists call positive feedback loops, but they're not positive at all. So as forests dry out and catch fire, all the fires are releasing carbon. And when the permafrost melts, uh, if people ever think about permafrost, what is it that froze? Well, it was kind of swampy stuff. It's full of methane gas. And if you lose the ice on the Arctic, the albedo effect of sun striking white ice bounces it back, bounces the heat away from the planet. As the ice shrinks, the positive feedback loop is the more that there's dark ocean water, the more that the heat is absorbed, the faster the ice melts. I mean, there are mm. a lot of these feedback loops. But the reality is, Elizabeth. Yeah. Now, it's hard to explain in sound bites. Okay. No, but that's, that was really helpful. Thank you. <laughs> but now you're still talking to me like this 1.52 degree thing is a possibility. Mm -hmm. This is not a possibility. We're blowing right past this. There's nowhere near the level of activity going on in the world that would be required to meet those targets. So we're going to hit three, four, five degrees. What's going to happen? What's going to be like? We can't do that because that leads to human extinction. The planet could become uninhabitable for all the species that currently live here, except for maybe cockroaches. We can't risk going above 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's what the IPCC report tells us. But what they also tell us is as unlikely as it is, given human nature, okay, scientifically, physically, economically, technologically, we can hold to 1.5 degrees, but not on our current trajectory, which is why we've launched Mission Possible, setting really bold goals that say, look, we can't cling to the target that Stephen Harper left behind because it's doable, it's not good enough to say, we want targets that are doable, even if they lead to, I mean, I don't like to talk about human extinction because it sounds way too scary. But somewhere south of that impact is loss of human civilization, nation states collapsing. I mean, the weight of hundreds of millions of environmental refugees, extreme weather events, extreme drought, loss of food supply, loss of water. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a security threat here that's real. That nation, that's why the military around the world is so worried about climate crisis, why the, the, you know, the military thinks about this stuff. How do we be sure that the, the People's Republic of China military and the Communist Party is very worried about what happens if they lose the ice on the Tibetan plateau, because they sometimes call it the third pole. If we lose the ice on the Tibetan Plateau, that loses the water to five major rivers of Asia. The, the, the social and security impacts of that are enormous. So we can't risk going above 1.5. So I know the logical thing is to say, look at where we're headed. On current trajectories, you're absolutely right. That's why we have to bend that curve and change our trajectory. And we can do that, but only if we act very, very soon. Because the best time to have acted was, by the way when you were working for a certain prime minister in a minority parliament, Paul Martin put forward a plan that would have worked, and Harper canceled it. And I seem to be the only human being on this planet, including liberals, who remember 
that in 2005, we had a workable climate plan that would have taken us close to Kyoto. We would be so much better off today if that had been pursued. But what's become fashionable is to say, oh, targets don't matter. We always ignore them. Look, this isn't a political target. This is a target of scientists saying, you do this or all hope for your children is pretty much gone. And I'm not prepared to accept giving, you know, leaving. Well, I'm just, I'm not going to accept it. As long as we have an opportunity as, as leaders to chart a different course, that's what we must do. Okay, so you are yourself, I want to get into why, how you think climate policy should be different in Canada, because you are critical of the current government's climate policy, Yeah. Um, even though many people might argue that their emphasis on climate, such as it is, is a political vulnerability uh, for them. You would argue that they should be doing <clears throat> more, um, and I'm, I'm interested, you are likely to be influential in the next government. We are likely to have a minority parliament um, after the next election. Um, So what will be different about climate and economic policy once you have influence? Let me ask you this. Is the carbon tax higher or is it gone? Okay, first of all, let me just back up to say, I think the liberals are more vulnerable on climate because they're not consistent than because they tried. So you can't say on a Monday night in parliament when we had the debate on climate emergency, I don't know why they put the debate on a climate emergency on the same night as the Raptors rally because it meant I was the only person (laughs) leading a party in Parliament to debate this because Mm. everybody was at the Raptors rally. Uh, And then the next day, say, we're going ahead with pipeline because expanding the Trans Mountain Pipeline, particularly now with public funds, but in any case, there's no market case for it. But it inevitably means that we're increasing greenhouse gases at the same time that we're saying we're striving to reduce greenhouse gases. So I would never say, and I always... But you're making trade-offs. No. You are making trust because, well, wait, okay. tell me, you can tell me I'm wrong, but I, I, for instance, I'm reading that there's a debate between you and some members in your party about how quickly the oil sands should be phased out. Okay. You are not standing, sitting here with me today saying that if you're Prime Minister, you close it the next day. No, because... Right? So I'd, you're inherently yourself yeah, trying but, to strike some balance between economic growth yeah. and jobs and the environment. And then that's right? perfectly appropriate as long as you're clear on your goal. So our goal is double the current goal, 60% reductions in greenhouse gases below 2005 levels by 2030, because that's what the IPC, the IPCC said globally, to hold to no more than 1.5 degrees, we have to, all nations together, ensure that by 2030, global emissions of carbon dioxide are 45% less than they were in 2005. I mean, that's massive. So our proposals for Canada are massive. In the context of going off fossil fuels absolutely to zero by 2050, our position is, well, let's start with with ending the imports, because why should we be buying Saudi Arabian oil? That's another question that involves some human rights concerns I have about Saudi Arabia and the Greens have. There's, There's really not a debate within the federal Green Party. Alex, who is the leader of the Green Party of Quebec, seems to misunderstand that that what we're talking about is a massive reduction in greenhouse gases in the context of trying to hold Canada as a country, which is essentially a family of Canadians. I don't like the divisions that have been promoted first by Rachel Notley, now by Jason Kenney, you know, acting as if Alberta, that we don't care about Alberta. We, Canadians, from coast to coast to coast, care about each other. So to make that transition, we're saying, look, let's cut our imports. Why are we? We're exporting 63% of our energy products. 
and we're importing from countries that are less savory. So let's cut the imports as a way of moving off fossil fuels. Start there, use Canadian supplies longer, and divert the production and processing of bitumen over time to the petrochemical industry. I think I was the first one to say it, but then Rachel Notley started putting it in place. So this is all doable. It's not a trade-off in the sense that, well, put it this way, Bill McKibben, uh, who wrote uh, well, he's written many, many wonderful books that are terrifying, like The End of Nature. And he founded a group called 350.org, which goes back to what I was saying on the evolution of how we talk about climate. When we talked about parts per million, and I said we had never been above 280, and now we're at 412. Oh, my God. 350.org is a group that says we have to somehow return the global concentration in our atmosphere to no more than 350, degree, 350 parts per million. 350 parts per million is where we might have a safe landing space. That's really hard because we've already overshot it significantly. Anyway, Bill McGivern always says, the first rule of holes is stop digging. Right. So uh, we will not expand any production. We will not increase expansion in the oil sense. We'll be decreasing it as rapidly as we can. There's a lot of jobs for workers in repairing the environmental damage of the tailings ponds. There are, there's a lot of work for the oil patch. One of the coolest things I've discovered lately, you know, we have 100,000 abandoned deep oil wells in Alberta. 100,000 with a liability to the people of Alberta or maybe of Canada in the billions of dollars. But about 10% of them can be used for geothermal power. Mm. So you could actually put water down, get up the steam, and actually run green electricity from the heat down at depth. But the biggest cost of geothermal is the drilling. So you've got all these, you know, if even 10,000 of those 100,000 abandoned wells can be used to produce green electricity. So it, it's, it's not a trade-off in the sense that we're going to allow increases in fossil fuel production over here because we're getting decreases over here. We have to decrease everywhere all at once, ramp up renewables all at once, and unleash some disruptive technologies that transfer our economy as rapidly as the as the the horse and buggy was replaced with the Model T, which if you look at that history, that was about a 10-year period. Nobody regulated it or called for it. It just happened. And we're right now, we still have government policies that suppress disruptive technologies because we're still subsidizing fossil fuels. So if you, if you um, um, are involved in the next government and your position is we need to do everything all at once, mm -hmm. Um, I knew a guy who tried that once. That's a recipe for uh, paralysis in the government and lack of focus. You, you say, and I agree with you. I'm not challenging you. This is an absolute crisis, yeah. and nobody's doing nearly enough to reach it. So what's the one thing that you would do to change Canada's climate policy that would have the biggest difference? Take the politics out of it. No, no, give me an action. No, I mean, well, create Give me a, an action. Create, give me a climate action. Oh, oh, well, well, I think it is a climate action to create the equivalent of a war cabinet, an inner cabinet with all the parties say we do this together so that when an election happens, we don't say, okay, we're just going to undo what the last guys did. We have to have a commitment as a country at, at all levels of and, and areas of collaboration that are possible. So put out a call, because I know the municipal order of government is ready to move, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, because, again, back to 1998 or 99, when Paul Martin, as Minister of Finance, put that big chunk of money at FCM for a, re a revolving fund that allowed municipalities to reduce greenhouse gases and save money at the same time. That order of government has a lot of experience in 
cutting greenhouse gases and saving money. We need to plant gazillion trees. I'm not going to put the number on it, but we should be planting trees everywhere. How many Rotary Clubs, if we called out to them, because I'm now a Rotarian, I love my Rotary Club, of it, people with volunteer service club spirit. How many people, if we said, okay, Government of Canada is going to provide trees, who wants to plant them? And as we have to think way outside the box, but the simply, the, the first and biggest thing is in, this is from a report called- You don't have a wand. D, well, we- You don't have a wand? If I was hoping you had a wand. No, like, <laughs> well, look, there- I mean, here's the problem. Facing an existential crisis, status quo decision-making won't work. <clears throat> so did FDR have a wand? Did Winston Churchill have a wand? They did things that were outside of what they had been doing the day before they decided we have to fight to survive. And we're right now in a situation where status quo decision-making won't work. Status quo politics is in the way. An inner war cabinet, if, we, if, we're in a, if we're in a minority parliament situation, and we say we've really got to work together here. And let's take, and of course, your question was carbon taxes. Of course, we'd keep them. We have a different strategy for how to implement them. We would do fee and dividend, but that's, that's like dancing on the edge of a pin. Mm. The point is we'd have carbon. I voted for the Liberals' carbon pricing. I'm not taking shots at people for purposes of partisanship. Mm. I will support when people do the right thing. It was the right thing most recently to say we will keep pursuing corporate average fleet economy standards in lockstep with California and not with the White House. That was the right thing to do. I'd been I'd asked for a long time. We had a, a joint letter from a number of us as members of parliament from all the different parties except for Max Bernie, to say to Catherine McKenna, please stick with California. Don't go, don't be distracted by what happens when Trump tries to destroy fuel economy standards. So I'm not saying the liberals under Justin Trudeau haven't done better things than the conservatives would have done. But the bottom line is, does it ensure our children survive? No, it doesn't. We have to do twice as much. Do we have a magic wand? No, but we have collective will and with political courage, we can do it. Okay. Well, that's that. That's a that's a fairly optimistic note. Um, <laughs> I have to be an optimist. Perhaps, I'm a grandmother. Um, how do you feel about this Green New Deal idea that is circulating in the United States? Uh, this massive public works program to sort of retrofit buildings and a combination Rooseveltian yeah. public works mm-hmm. job creation program and climate change fighting. Yeah. The the funny thing about the Green New Deal in the States is that one of the more radical things in it is public universal health care. Right? So I sort of, mm. when I look at the Green New Deal, yeah, it's great and bold in, uh, in a different country. We're already ahead of them on one of these very key planks that nobody dies if they don't have money. Right. It's kind of a basic thing, which, by the way, came from a minority parliament that dreamed big, didn't have a magic wand, but Lester B. Pearson... And 17 new Democrats with an opposition of John Diefenbaker brought in our health care, Canada Pension Plan, unemployment insurance, student loans with no interest attached to them, and the flag. Those mm-hmm. are big things that happened. Yeah, one of, the, one of the most uh, impressive governments in Canadian history. That's and it was my, a minority. Exactly. That's my dream. So uh, w- when, you, when, when we look at this, we think, yeah, we, this, this can be done. We have to stay optimistic about it. Okay. So... Before I want to talk politics with you because uh-huh. you're in politics. I, I know that you like to talk policy, but you're in politics, so I we're going to talk I'm politics. In politics. And I- <clears throat> but uh, just before I get that, I want to just give us a little 
primer on the Green Party, because I mm-hmm. think a lot of people are starting to pay attention to the Green Party that have never paid attention to it before. And I have a very basic question. Is it a progressive party or a conservative party? Other than climate, what kind of party is this? Is government too big or too small? Are taxes too low or too high? Depends on who's getting taxed. On the larger multinational corporations and some of the people with the most money, they're not taxed enough. On some of average Canadians feel overtaxed, and they are. Does small business feel overregulated? Yes, and it is. Are large multinationals overregulated? They walk away and leave us with a mess. So I think that the left-right dichotomy doesn't really fit anymore. I think when you look at something as weird as people actually saying before the uh, the U.S. election, oh, well, there's a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters who will vote for Trump if Hillary's the nominee. What the heck? So it's a this notion of insiders and outsiders, I think, is much more where we find the divides these days. But back to your question, the Green Party was formed in the early 1980s in different places all around the world. My husband, John Kidder, by the way, was a founder of the Green Party of British Columbia right. back in 83 with a number of other friends of mine. Uh, the Green Party in Germany was largely formed around getting rid of nuclear weapons and trying to uh, – In the, it was still Cold War time, right? They wanted to – it was a peace party more than anything. We are aligned with six core green values, and one of them is social justice. So we are absolutely a party committed to eliminating poverty. We want to bring in a guaranteed livable income so nobody's poor. We want to bring in pharmacare that's universal. And we want to bring in uh, the abolition of tuition so that students can start their life without massive debt. We're in that sense progressive. Are we conservative? Well, uh, we think carbon pricing can work, which is a market force mechanism that comes out of the conservative toolbox but not by itself. You need a whole comprehensive plan. But we also believe that we should balance our budgets. So our platform in 2019 is all with the budget that goes with it is already in the process of being costed plank by plank by the parliamentary budget office. And we won't release it until we're confident that we're right and we can get to a balanced budget within five years. Why do you care about that? Nobody cares about that. I think I care about it. We care about it as a party because it's one of the things that we've had as a value within the Green Party of Canada for a long time is to live within our means ecologically and economically. We also I care about debt for another reason, which is the more that the bond raiders in New York can make a decision with a stroke of the pen without any real evidence that we go from AAA credit rating to AA credit rating, that has a huge impact on our ability to, uh, to meet our program. Uh, so we we look at this and think, eh, for debt being held by commercial banks mm-hmm. is really dangerous for a country. We went through we went basically went through structural adjustment to get out of debt to you know balance budgets and, and reduce our debt uh, in the nineties. But that was a crisis situation. Yeah, but it was. I mean, the also- debt to GDP was super high. I know, and there was a different. Economic ideology work now. But that was apparently the- nobody cares about deficits now. I know. And I had Jim Stanford on this podcast. Oh, I love Jim. And, well, who doesn't? He's a really smart guy. And, and his about you know living within your means. His argument would be that as long as your debt to GDP ratio was reasonable and you could service your debt, that you are living within your means, and you ought not to be running balanced budgets. You ought to be investing. Well, what we're doing is that is our goal. Over a five-year period, we think Canadians feel better about. It. I mean, I mean, if it's a small deficit in the scheme of our large economy, it's inconsequential, it's trivial. But if we can balance our budget and look to the future, as we do dramatically larger public programs, which means okay, so that means since we're not an austerity party, 
that we're looking for revenue. Where do we look for revenue? Well, we ought to pursue the the offshore accounts in the Pentagon Papers, one example. We ought to look at, at the tax rate on multinational corporations. We ought to look at the corporations that make a lot of money here and don't pay any taxes, which is essentially the virtual companies, whether Amazon or Facebook or uh, Twitter or Airbnb. We've got a lot of competition to regulated industries and small business in Canada that hollow out that business and it feels fun and cool because it's virtual, but it's actually doing real damage. So we are looking at, of course, at carbon taxes are revenue neutral, so we don't look at them as revenue. But there are other places that we look for revenue so that we know, and of course, cutting subsidies so that we can afford the programs we're calling for. I think Canadians actually, I think it's an expectation of Canadians that is reasonable. It's one of the first questions I get at any town hall meeting is, do you know how you're going to pay for this? And now that is neoliberal framing. It comes from decades of conditioning that this is a question that matters. But as long as it matters to Canadians, it matters to the Green Party. Right. So what are your objectives for this campaign? You've got wind in your sails. The polls are showing that your support's double or triple what it was in the last campaign. Um, Know-nothing pundits like myself are predicting you're going to get more votes than the NDP in this election. What's behind all this? What is going on with the Green Party? Well, expectations and what's going on. The ground is shifting under our feet. I didn't think I'd see anything like this uh, as leader of the party. I, went, I was uh, last week, or was it or, well, maybe two weeks ago, we were in Yellowknife. And we've been, as I said, these Community Matters tours we've done in 27 communities. And in the Northwest Territories, I, I, we've, we've never considered it a, a, you know, a hot prospect for the Green Party. But we, the local Greens thought they could get 50 people maybe to come to the town hall. And then they realized they were getting a bigger interest, so they got a bigger hall so they could fit 100. We had 240 people they, I mean, in Yellowknife. And they were, I, as in every community where we've opened up an open mic and said, ask me anything, what's on your minds? What we get is a disillusionment with the old line parties, a sense of <coughs> I've always voted for party. You can almost fill in the blank with any of the three. Mm. I've always voted this way. I don't want to again. I feel I feel so let down. I'm not comfortable with those policies, or I don't think that leader's doing what, I, what I'd hoped for. So no matter where you are on the spectrum, people are looking for something that they can count on. That, that level of – I mean, I'm honored by the idea that when they polled on who's the most ethical leader, I got – you know, I don't – I'm not going to hang my hat on one pole, but I think it's fair to say that Canadians know that we're driven by principle and that we're not playing power games. And I really believe, as every Green candidate believes, in respectful politics where we're kind to other people. And, you know, you know, I made a tremendous effort to always Negative be able- advertising works. Are you going to do negative advertising? Not in a million years. Wait, you think the conservatives are climate criminals and you think the Trudeau government's failing and you're not going to tell people that? We're going to talk about issues, nothing ad hominem. If you can talk about issues, that's fair. But we're not going to, you know, do – because really uh, negative ads and, and they really they, – they work because they suppress the vote – for the people who were going to vote for that party, not because they inspired people to vote for your party, right? So I think I think it's really no. They can't switch. They do both. A, well, they, they I can, mean, they can switch votes, but I mean, Elizabeth. Uh, I mean, the attack ads on um, people are going to go through this election campaign thinking yeah. that the Trudeau government loves the environment, 
and loves climate change and that they're on the side of climate advocates. The only people that are going to tell them, and, and, and Shear's going to reinforce that. Shear's going to tell them all campaign, tell people all campaign long, Trudeau's obsessed with climate. Who's going to tell voters who care about the climate that they should be voting for you and not Trudeau? A lot of Canadians have already reached the conclusion that it is incompatible with climate leadership to be subsidizing fossil fuels, spending $4.5 billion on a 65-year-old pipeline, and another 10 to $13 billion of public money on an expansion that will drive up greenhouse gases. I can't – I mean, we will tell people that. But I will never say something ad hominem like, you know, the, the attack ads that I find despicable are the ones that say, um, you know, for Stéphane Dion, you know, not a leader. For Ignati, if he didn't come back for you. I mean, these taglines that stick are not about policy. They're ad hominem. We will never do that. Mm. Okay. Um, so... Besides, uh, we, I don't know how much how much money we have for TV ads anyway, David. But that's a fair point. We do. I was going to I was going to ask you, what is your organizational capacity to take advantage of this opportunity? Do you have money? We have not not really. I mean, we're raising money more than we've ever raised before. But on compared to the conservatives or the liberals, we are still going to be. You know, the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. We we do not have big bags of money. We have more money than we used to have. Do you have, do you have enough money to be on television in this campaign? I believe, yeah, we do, but not to the extent that the other guys will be. You know, we're not going to be interrupting the World Cup or, well, that's over, but yeah. we're not going to be interrupting high-priced moments in the world of television with a Sockham ad. We certainly will have uh, a lot of content that can be shared on social media. We will have some television ads. Of course we will. We won't run attack ads. That's clear. Uh, we have a lot of capacity in terms of ground strength in places we didn't used to have it. I mean, when Greens do well anywhere, Greens do well everywhere. And that means that the people who have worked to elect an official opposition in Prince Edward Island, and that's a lot of volunteers, are still there to elect federal Greens there. And they're still there in, in Fredericton and, and throughout New Brunswick where Greens worked hard at the provincial level. I think it's not out of the realm of possibility that we'll win seats on September 10th in the Manitoba provincial election. So as our volunteer capacity and staffing capacity improves, the mechanics of how do you win a campaign, we know that way better now than we used to. We, uh, the national campaign team uh, and the campaign manager, deputy campaign manager, are the ones you should ask these questions to because I'm out Who there Who is saying, the campaign manager? Jonathan Dickey. Who's that? He is. Uh, he was my campaign manager when I won May second, twenty eleven. Yeah. He's a brilliant young man from Nova Scotia who worked with me when I was running in Central Nova, mm -hmm. and he. We've been working together for the last ten years, and he wasn't involved in the twenty fifteen campaign because he was doing a lot more things, running my constituency office and the nonpartisan side of work. But he's been involved in a number of winning. So you run the national campaign. Yes, he's running the national campaign. Interesting. I'm really. I'm happy about that. Um. You, um, uh, Shear's an unknown commodity for most Canadians. Yeah, I know and, him really well. Yeah, so does my sister. She ran against him in uh, his first election. Um, God, I, how I wish history had been different. But in any event, <laughs> um, you've been watching He would have him. had to get a real job. That would have been a... Exactly. Mm -hmm. What's your assessment of him as a potential PM? Oh, I... 
I worked with, I tried really hard and I, I know Andrew well. I would also say that we're on friendly terms, but when he was speaker, I really kept hoping he would actually, you know, it's rule at least a couple times against the interests of Stephen Harper. I mean, if you're a speaker, you're supposed to be nonpartisan. And I'm amazed that he's not been lambasted for his career path because he's the first speaker of the House in the history of the country to ever go back into partisan politics and worse, as leader of a party. Mm. Uh, so that, I think, is massively disillusioning in the person I thought he had the potential to be, right? He told me once that his hero was Sir Thomas More. You know, I kept imagining that there'd be a moment when Stephen Harper might think, who will rid me, rid me of this meddlesome speaker? Not a, not a thing. Mm. I mean, he was a consistent conservative as speaker, which is hard because all of us in Parliament, the arbiter of our lives, our right to speak, whether legislation is in proper form, whether, you know, know, parliamentary rules and procedure are in the hands of the speaker. They're to defend the rights of the individual member of parliament. We kind of have to collectively suspend disbelief and believe Peter Milliken may have been a liberal, but now he's the speaker. I think Peter Milliken did that better. Scheer was supposed to be dispassionate, objective, nonpartisan. Now, and then to go back and be the leader of the party, and worse, to lead his caucus in the most disrespectful breach of parliamentary rules, I don't know, at least in decades, with having every conservative bang the desk so Bill Morneau could not be heard in reading, reading the budget speech. These things may not bother other people, but I'm kind of a fanatic for parliamentary decorum and respect and respecting our institutions. So I've been really disappointed in Andrew personally. I don't think, as prime minister... You know, basically, I think he'd just be looking at how do we hang on to power for next time. I don't know that he has any vision for the country other than how do we keep this country in the hands of conservatives for next time. And I don't think he understands climate change. I'm really glad that he took the step of putting forward a non-plan because at least it included the words. The climate issue is important, but it failed to understand that you actually can't increase greenhouse gases and call it a climate plan. So I think in that sense, until he really understands the climate crisis, by the way, in terms of climate actions, convene a new parliament. And before we start doing anything, convene a committee of the whole and have the world's climate scientists come in and educate the entire parliament because far too many people don't understand what's at stake. Education is key. I don't think so. Oh, I don't think he has a, a, a single idea that his own children's future could be undermined. Well, I just assumed he was being cynical and calculated. You think he's actually stupid? I think, no, I don't think he's stupid. I think he's uneducated. Whoa. I mean, ed- ignorance. Well, I'm uneducated. Well, ignorance, but I'm able to ignorance, read the paper. Ignorance can be cured. <laughs> Stupidity is a bigger problem. No, I, I don't think he's stupid. I think he is either willfully uneducated. My, my buddy, my seatmate, Max Bernier. You know, we, yeah. up, until, up until Paul Manley got elected, my seatmate in Parliament was Max. And Max yeah. said, Elizabeth, please tell everybody I'm the only honest one because I will do nothing on climate. <laughs> and, and, ne- and neither will Andrew, but he won't tell anyone that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you could well hold this decision in your hands about who the next prime minister is because I think that uh, – real probability is a minority parliament. I sure hope so. Is there any question in your mind as to who should be the prime minister? I would approach any negotiation with an open mind because that's how Greens always do. My colleague who was leader of the Green Party of Australia had had that decision in his hands between Australia's Labour Party and National Liberal Party and 
went into those negotiations because he told me about it. You have to go in thinking, yeah, we know these guys are right wing and don't want climate action. And we know that, okay, uh, the Labor Party is more likely, but said in the election, we'll never bring in a carbon tax. They had to negotiate with both. The same thing happened for Andrew Weaver in BC, went into negotiations to talk to the BC Liberals. Pretty sure they weren't going to be on board. But on the other hand, it was Gordon Campbell who came up with the best carbon price we've ever had designed in Canada. And he was a BC liberal. So I think you have to go into it thinking, uh, we negotiate. We don't make prejudgments. And if we're ever fortunate enough to be in that position, which I do not assume by any means, we have a heck of a lot of work. Mm. But um, my my dear friend, who's also my my MLA, is a Green Party MLA. He's also Sartlip First Nation. And Adam Olson said at the time they were negotiating, we don't have the balance of power. We have the balance of responsibility. So you also have to try to discern from the way Canadians voted, what's the fairest outcome? What does this parliament look like to make sure it's as democratic as possible in the way we put it together? We don't want to fuel any public cynicism like the Green Party with whatever percent of the vote is suddenly calling the shots and that's not democratic. We have to think about how did people vote overall? What's the percentage of votes for parties that are generally on board for climate action, which would be NDP, liberal, and green votes? And maybe now conservative votes because you know conservatives overwhelmingly also want climate action. And so you have to figure it out in a way. No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I mean, that party, from Ford to Shear to Kenny to Higgs uh, to Mo, they are dug in now as an institution on these issues. Oh, I know. And it, there's, it, they will be judged harshly by our by history if 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 there is a history to be written. If 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 they succeed in the course they want to set, there will be no history to be written, right? right? So we have to. But when I look at it, I think, okay, we do not want it was. It's a terrible thing when an issue as important as climate becomes polarized left right. Or we weren't polarized in the 1980s. I mean, I worked in the Mulroney administration. I was just for the record, I was never a member of the party, which yeah. did create issues for uh, my boss because he's like, don't tell anyone that. But <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we the, Mulroney. I had good climate policy as well as good acid rain and ozone and everything else. Um, when you look around the world, um, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, right-wing French leader, but he said, we're face- he was the first leader I ever heard to say, we face the threat of the survival of civilization. We need to bring in carbon taxes. And he called for global carbon taxes on air travel and international shipping, which is still an area that's unregulated under the Paris Agreement. We have to get to it. I don't think it actually has anything to do with ideology. I think conservatism, and Preston Manning has been saying this for years, I think conservatism, and Hugh Siegel said it to me, is environmental concern is a huge part of conservative uh, theory and conservative thinking. I think this is all about business and regional interests. I and think it, that's yeah. just, it's about the conservative party, yeah. not conservative ideology. I agree with you entirely. This current crop of conservatives who want to attack climate action it's not even about business because the business case for going off fossil fuels is very strong and the renewable energy sector and clean and green uh, parts of our economy already employ way more people than oil sands. Oil sands at their peak were never more than 3% of our GDP. And we've got this incredible mythology that every school and hospital that's built in this country, we can thank the oil sands for that. No, I'm sorry. It's it's important to take to ensure that those workers have an orderly transition with transferable skills to other jobs. But, but Notley 
and Kenny are playing a very divisive card to hold on to their own base. It didn't work for Notley, it worked for Kenny, uh, basically fueling Alberta separatism. I'm a Canadian federalist. I want all parts of this country to work together like a family. We can disagree around the dinner table. We don't always agree. Sometimes families can be a little dysfunctional. But bottom line, you have to know you love each other. And this country, Canadians from coast to coast to coast do love each other. So that Maybe they're not totally unreasonable, Elizabeth. Maybe maybe it's possible to look at it because I'm from Saskatchewan. Uh-huh. And um, twice now, governments... Trudeau under the National Energy Program and now climate policy, which I mm-hmm. won't blame on Trudeau. I think it's a necessary fact, it's climate policy. These two policies have both specifically had as their intent to make the Alberta oil and gas industry less successful than it would otherwise be. There may be, and there are in this case, very good policy reasons behind that. But yeah. shouldn't we acknowledge that and find some way to compensate them? Sure. Or Like they are being asked to bear a disproportionate burden of Canada's fight yeah, against climate change. because they're a disproportionate. If it wasn't for Alberta and Saskatchewan's emissions, the other provinces collectively would have met the previous Harper target, which is, you know, we have to do twice as much as the Harper target, which remains the true. That's fair enough, but we've been cashing the checks all these yeah, years. Yeah, but so. what we also have to do is recognize, I mean, Jean, without Jean Chrétien's subsidizing of the oil sands in 1996, they would never have taken off. I mean, oil was selling for under $30, for $30 a barrel, Without the accelerated capital cost allowance, the federal taxpayer also financed the growth of the oil sands. But yes, it's true. We can't just say uh, we want this burden to fall in Alberta. That's why we, we want to focus so much on building this electricity grid, a, a true Canadian grid strategy. Alberta has tremendous potential in solar, tremendous potential in wind. And they can be benefiting from this, but we also have to work together and figure out how we co-finance it so that it isn't a burden that falls specifically more on Alberta and on Saskatchewan. But they're also specific. I mean, Saskatchewan farmers are so at risk from climate crisis, and that doesn't get talked about. We act as if we're terrified of the solutions without ever thoroughly examining the threat. <laughs> the threat is way scarier than the solutions. Right. But we're, we're in this kind of weird paralysis. Mm-hmm. So, no, I think it is... People to, don't like to examine counterfactuals. Yeah, well, the, the reality of our current situation is political leadership requires a grounding in evidence, being aware that what we face is, in fact, an existential threat that can visit the end of civilization before my daughter reaches my age. This terrifies me. I'm not prepared to accept that we have no options other than to say it's too hard. It is, as long as it's physically possible, as long as it's scientifically possible and economically feasible, which it is, we have to make that correction before the next election. 2023 is too late. So a minority parliament in this election where we can say, come on, let's, let's look at the science Let's figure out at every level of government, every order of government, every aspect of our society, including particularly, this is a a part of the reconciliation agenda, self-governed indigenous peoples on their own territories. How much renewable energy capacity is there? Would, Would you sell into a grid? How much can we do about storage of renewable energy. Uh, one of my friends in the oil patch, he's an oil patch lawyer, and he's discovered, okay, there's all these quarry pits on indigenous language, on, on indigenous lands that are abandoned quarry pits, and they're at elevation. So you could do, ba- you know, pumped storage for, like, a, it turns into a big battery yeah. for renewable energy. Mm-hmm. 
There are so many solutions here that are exciting and engaging and involve every aspect of society and solutions. The people who stand in the way of solutions and throw brickbats at Trudeau for, as I voted for the, as I said, I voted for the liberal uh, carbon price when it came in. I could tinker around the edges and say I wouldn't have done it exactly this way. But I, I publicly supported the architecture of the approach of a federal backstop to make sure there's carbon price everywhere. Uh, and I will continue to defend the, the things that have been done while making it very, very clear that they're wholly insufficient to avoid disaster. And the point here isn't to be incrementally or even massively better than the conservatives. That's not, that's not the bar we're looking at. The bar is, does it save us? Hmm. If it doesn't ensure our children have a livable world, then it's not good enough, even if it's well-intentioned and, and better than the other guys. And of course, the, dis, the cognitive dissonance, the massive weirdness of buying a pipeline and forcing it through at the same time does undermine the credibility of the steps that have been good. All right. Three short snapper questions. Okay. To end this off with. Three short snapper questions. Uh, first of all, um, who impresses you in the Democratic race in the States? Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, they're, they're all impressive compared to, I mean, even, well. So those are the two that have made the biggest impression on you? Yeah. I have to say, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Are they both good on climate? Yeah, they're excellent. Well, Bernie's better. Okay. And I've worked with Bernie Sanders on climate. I used to go down to, I'd go down to Washington before he ever ran for president. I, you know, you, every MP gets a one trip a year to Washington. Yeah. So I would go down once a year for the best entry point to meet everybody important in Washington all at once, which is, believe it or not, the National Prayer Breakfast. So I'd go down for national prayer breakfast with all my friends from the conservative party who were also more aligned with the evangelical movement. That's okay. They're, they're dear friends. And I'd just make my way through the Washington prayer breakfast, national prayer breakfast that the president hosts. And they, they have foreign MPs come. Anyway, I'd get a really good table right near the front. They always put me near the front because I'm leader of a party, which I don't think they understood what that means in Canada. But anyway, I'd, and I'd just find every cabinet minister I could find and say, Hi, I'm Canadian. I'm a Canadian member of Parliament. Just wanted you to know, not every Canadian wants the Keystone Pipeline. Thanks. Bye. Praise the Lord. So <laughs> I just moved through the crowd. But I mean, that's in the period when I, working against Keystone, was when I got to first meet and work with Bernie Sanders. So I'm very personally um, biased by knowing what a solid, thoroughly wonderful human being he is. Well, that's cool. That's cool to hear. <laughs> Did you catch any of this uh, podcast series called No Second Chances? No. Do you know what it is? No. Okay, so um, uh, somebody who was a guest on this podcast, Kate Graham, she was in charge of putting together a series of studies of women first ministers in Canada. Oh. And it's called No Second Chances because none of them has ever been reelected. It's not the glass ceiling, it's the glass cliff. All right. Um, how do you, uh, what are your thoughts um, on um, being a woman seeking political leadership? About time. Right. You know, I, I how, think how are you being received? How do you feel the world treats you out there? Very well. I yeah. mean, I think I'm, and, and this is going to sound like hubris. I'm trying, but I think I am really well qualified to be prime minister because I know what the job is and I work really hard. And it's not being president. We have different systems. And I go back to Lester B. Pearson at a time when, I mean, it, it was, there was no such thing as PMO under Lester B. Pearson. It was a bunch of file clerks and stenographers, and the notion of our parliament is that every member of parliament is equal 
and the prime minister is first among equals. That's what I think the job is. And getting control of PCO and asking to make sure that everybody really has a solid knowledge base of their portfolio. We've, we moved into, in the early 90s, kind of a managerial culture that if you were a good DG in transport today, you could be an excellent ADM at DFO tomorrow. No. If you're a good dentist, are you a good brain surgeon? I mean, we've, there's a lot of things that I'd like to see fixed to make our government work in a way that achieves the excellence that we used to have with those sort of mandarins, the people like Arthur Kruger, the late Arthur Kruger, or Harry Swain, or uh, Gordon Ritchie. Superb. I'm not, I'm not dissing our current civil service, but there was a culture of excellence that had to do with being big brains that knew your topics, knew the policy world in a kind of 360 way that gave ministers really solid advice. So how am I treated as a woman I, a leader? Um, there, are, there are enough women leaders around the world uh, that I think people are used to the idea. I don't think Canadians, it's an interesting little factoid, we find that Green Party candidates who are women actually do better than their male colleagues. So I don't think it's the case that women don't get votes because they're women. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's a, a resistance to having, I mean, in other words, I think if the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party, parties that are more likely to form government, had women leaders, it wouldn't disadvantage them. What tends to happen is that, as in the case of Kathleen Wynne or in the case of Christy Clark or in the case you can go through all of them, they took office at a point where the public was pretty much at the end of their rope with that party. And because first past the post, which is a system that, of course, you'll recall, we last used in 2015 and we'll never use again. Sorry about that. I'm still very upset about Justin Trudeau breaking that promise because it really would have helped the whole country if he if he lived up to that promise. But in any case, first past the post elections don't really have Canadians going out to choose a government uh, and choose an MP that they because they want those policies. By the time we have a change in government, it's a throw the bums out moment. And a lot of women leaders get caught up in that. The tide's going out on you guys. We've had it, right? So I don't think I'm disadvantaged or treated unfairly because I'm a woman, not at all. Okay. Let's talk again as you get closer to power. See if that changes a little bit. As, as people have to think of you in a position of power, <clears throat> as instead of as an advocate. Well, I'm a, anyway. I'm, a, I work, I'm a public servant, so I don't think it's about the power. It's about how hard will you work for the greater <coughs> good of absolutely everybody. And that I am not, and the Greens, you see, are different because we actually aren't a party that, anywhere in the world that sees ourselves as being about getting the power. My colleague James Shaw right now is the Minister for Climate in the Government of New Zealand with the magnificent Labour PM, Jessica Adern, whom James helped put there in power because they also had to cobble together a government. Well, my, my friend Isabella Leuven is Deputy Prime Minister of Sweden. Uh, these, you know, around the world, I have colleagues who have experience in governing and they all work from the same values that we do which isn't about trying to grab a grass ri- brass ring and have power. It's about trying to serve the needs of the human family and this particular planet because we don't have anywhere, anywhere else to go. Well, I think a lot of your support is because people are looking for something different and uh, somewhat disenchanted with the old line parties. So... Good luck to you in doing politics differently. I know it's a, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, good luck to you in the upcoming campaign. 
Enjoy the rest of the summer. Thanks for coming on the Early Burley. Well, thank you for having me. Elizabeth May is one of the rising stars of Canadian politics. Uh, after years of seeming dormancy, the Green Party is on the march provincially and in the polls federally. Time will tell in the October election. I'm very, very glad that she took the time to come and talk to us about the Green Party, what it thinks about climate policy, and what it thinks about some other areas as well, and learn a little bit about her background. Thank you very much for listening. We have a full 117 ratings on iTunes. I know that we have 20 or 30 more listeners than that, so please make your way over to iTunes. Give us a review and a rating, and a shout-out on social media is always welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.